You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Now that heart is beating fast And that's the rhythm I can dance to I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to That one big heart that's beating fast Tomorrow morning let it rain Tomorrow morning let it pour Tonight we're in the groove together Ain't gonna worry about Stormy Gonna kick old trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble on the drum. Beat out old trouble on the drum. Beat out old trouble on the drum. And kick old trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. And kick old trouble out the door. Kick him out the door. Welcome to Radical Australia and Community Radio 3CR, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. That's right, it's like those lazy old women, or was it lazy Wednesday afternoon? Is How it the, dare you? How dare is it, you? Is it the lazy old women from la- Wednesday, lazy, whatever? All these years you still don't know, do you? No, because they're not lazy. They're not they're lazy. They're hardworking. They are hardworking. They're hard intelligent. Working. Every week they put on a live music show for two hours. I know. That's just extraordinary that they can actually play records for two hours. That's an extraordinary Records feat. and CDs. Uh, CDs. And talk about them and talk about what's going on oh. in the town. That's the producer, Kelly Woodworth. Hey. I don't know what she's doing here. I mean, I can run this show without her. Um, which button do I press? <laughs> <laughs> now, look, seriously, I'd like, first of all, I'd like just to announce the uh, death of uh, John Moses Lawrence. Uh, many of the listeners may uh, know uh, John. He was a well known uh, anarchist and uh, activist here in uh, Melbourne and country Victoria, especially around the Ballarat. Region. He died uh, suddenly about a week ago, unexpectedly, and we extend our uh, our condolences to his family. I've been speaking to his brother over the last few days, and uh, when we know details regarding his funeral, when the, the body's released by the coroner, we'll uh, let you know. So uh, rest in peace, John Moses Lawrence. Now, look, I'm sorry, Charles or Charlie. 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 Hillsmith. Correct. Now, can I ask you a personal question? Go ahead, Jay. I, I get a, I get a picture of a fish every time I think of you. Why? A fish. Have you got any relationships to fish in mm, any way? Well, I, I am um, a Cancerian. Right. Therefore, crabs a, is close. A water-bound yeah. creature. Yeah. Well, maybe that's what it was. Maybe um, I, I do love the ocean. Mm. Um, mm. And I do eat fish on mm. occasion. Yeah. I have been known to eat fish. That's all right. Do you catch yeah. them? I do catch them, yes. I catch fish. I grew up uh, in the Barossa Valleys going to the Murray River uh-huh, to uh-huh. Blanchetown on the Murray with my dad, so I learned right. to catch fish. Uh, Mainly European carp, of course. Oh, yeah, that's what you catch these days. Not, not, not a great eating fish. Did, did your dad make you dig a big hole before you started fishing to chuck in the yeah, carp? Yeah, pretty much. No, yeah. the, the, it's just a free-for-all for, the, um, for yeah. the, the birds around there just getting yeah. stuck into dead carp on the 
on the mud flats of the Murray. Yeah, I, I like that. So, what, what year were you born? I was born in 1966 in Tanunda in the Barossa Valley. Tanunda. Tanunda. Do you speak German? I don't speak German. You should. I should, but I, I grew up with a lot of Germans. Right. Yeah, right, yeah a lot right. of Nitschkes and Schultzes and right. the like, yeah. And, uh, you, you, know, you know, the Germans in South Australia are very famous for one thing, which you'll never pick. Fritz. No, no. Uh, Metwurst. No. Black, in de- black pudding. In December 1916, the Labor Party was in disarray yeah. regarding the question of conscription, and a plebiscite was held in Australia, you know, to support conscription. And the government of the day, led by Billy Hughes, felt it was a laid-down misere. Mm. And this conscription referendum was successful in two of the states, and in, but it wasn't successful in South Australia. Yeah. And why? It was a very close result. It looks like all the German descendants... In the Barossa Valley, voted against conscription. How do you like that? Well, that's uh, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise me because then they were subsequently all locked up. That's right. Yeah, they were uh, from uh, you know, the Barossa and Handorf, yep. um, which was changed. They changed the name from Handorf to Ambleside. That's right. Europe, they English yeah. Anglicised it, mm. uh, and they locked up all the Germans in a, mm. in a bunch of sort of uh, you know pseudo concentration camps mm. around the state, mm. and. Um, yeah, it was a really serious deal. And then in the Second World War, there was sort of, you know, all these sort of conspiracy theories about Nazi cells mm. in the Barossa. Right. You know. Um, oh, there you are. Ready to strike. Ready you are. Mm. Ready mm. you are. Yeah, my uncle was interned in the Second World War. Was he? Oh, he had an Italian surname, unfortunately. Uh, where was he interned? Up in Ingham. Okay. Yeah, up okay. that way, up in North Queensland. But after about a year, they realised that this 18-year-old would be more useful Growing vegetables totally. for the war effort and been in turn. Let, let him loose on the market gardens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, were your parents born in Australia? Yes. And yeah, yeah. Long time, long time Australian. So, yeah, how long? How long? So, the Smiths have been here since 1838. Wow. Um, Samuel Smith was a brewer. He came across um, uh, before the gold rushes, uh, and he. He came by himself. He left his wife and kids in, in back in, in England, and um, he got a job working for a fellow called George Fife Angus, and that's Anguston, and the whole Barossa Valley was portioned off and sold um, to George Fife Angus, and my great-great-great-great Samuel was a gardener for him. Mm-hmm. And, and then the Germans arrived. Um, the Germans uh, pleaded with George Fife Angus for exodus, they were Lutherans being persecuted in sort of around what is now what what was Prussia, and uh, being a very Christian man, he heard this call of Exodus, and said, "Yeah, we've got all this land up here. Why don't you come and have a little slice of of heaven?" So a whole bunch of shiploads of Germans came out, and of course, that was one of the sort of first, I guess, multicultural exper- uh, experiments mm. for Australia, mm. um, outside of the the English, Scottish, Irish mm. experience. And um, and then they found gold in 1853 in Melbourne or in Ballarat. And um, so Samuel sent for his son. His son came out. They came over here to Victoria and they found gold. They found 500 quid's worth of gold. Excuse me? 500 pounds worth of gold. Have you got any? any, any yes, as got, a descendant, have I, they have given yeah, you any? I carry it with me. You carry it with you? I've got, I've got a strong back. box on, on the stagecoach out the front. Have you? All yeah. right. Yeah. How many horses? Uh, just, just two horses. Just I'm, two I'm, horses. I'm not, a sh- not a showy person, Joe. Not a showy. No, I noticed that. Um, Looking at the way you're dressed, yeah, you're not very yeah. showy at all. you got your shoes on, good Lord. 
Lacking with fresh socks on these mics. Are your parents still alive? They're not, unfortunately, Jay. No. Well, no. so we can talk about them. What we, was it like? Openly, yeah. openly. Yeah, what, what yeah. was it? What, are the, what were their names? Uh, Alexandra was my mum. Alexandra mm. Forbes, and the mm. Forbeses are another sort of well-known South Australian family. Um, they they'd only been here since about the eighteen eighties, um, and Dad was John Hill Smith. So Johnny and Alexandra, and um, they are great people, and. Mm-hmm. Um, They've come from very conservative backgrounds, but they they broke the mould, I guess, of a sort of a Australian conservatism by teaching my sister and I to listen to everybody and to judge nobody. And they never said a a crook word or a racist word about anybody or anyone or any group in our house. And so even though they didn't have friends who were Indigenous Australians or from sort of varied cultural backgrounds, and certainly not how my life has gone they gave my sister and I this sort of basic respect for people. And, and that's I think that was the greatest gift, you know, from their generation, the very conservative mm. uh, generation. It is a gift. It is a gift, that attitude to life. Yeah, totally. You respect people until they punch you in the face. That's right. <laughs> Just <laughs> make sure you know it. You can run as well. Exactly, know. yeah. So where did you go to school, primary school? So I went to primary school in, uh, in Angerston to start with in the Barossa Valley. And uh, was there for a couple of years, and then I went to town and went to Scotch College in right. Adelaide. Scotch College. Scotch College. Yeah. What, what was it like in primary school for a young, young lad? It was good. It was great. I I um, I enjoyed school. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a very social person, and of course, we you know growing up is a is a torrid affair, Joe. As you as you remember, yes, Nothing, I do no, remember. No, My mother used to think used to tell me I was a bastard of a child, but. She's gone now. And, I, and, and she was right. right. She was right. She wasn't being literal about that. She, she wasn't literal. No, no, she wasn't being literal. She was just, secret, right. no, no, she was just telling me I was right. a little yeah, bugger, little you bastard, know. Yeah. Little bastard, you know, always causing trouble. Yeah. You weren't one of them, were you? Um, I did get in a lot of trouble, but I generally didn't get caught. Well, how can you get in trouble if you don't get caught? Well, that's right. I, 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 you you get, get into strife, but don't get caught. So, so you know, always looking, for a, always looking for a laugh, always looking for a gag. I was yeah. constantly... Getting terrible reports at school saying Charlie would be a good student if he wasn't the class clown and disrupting oh, right. the entire class oh, with his ridiculous hijinks. Um, <clears throat> so, what other kind are there? Well, ridiculous right. hijinks. Yeah, well, I guess is yeah, that's right. Yeah. Hijinks, hijinks <laughs> rule. Yeah. So my son's a bit the same. My son. Hey, hey, don't uh, excuse me. I don't want. I don't want a lawsuit from your son. Fair enough. Yeah. All right, you know, let's yeah, leave yeah, him out of yeah. it. So we haven't got to that far yet. We'll change names to protect uh, well, the innocent. Yeah, look, you can't. You can't slag off on your own son here on. You know, on radio, this is going to be podcast. It'll be here for him to listen to at I your funeral. That. You know, you can't call him a little hijinks. Thank you. Yeah, for, yeah. No, I appreciate that. That's it's all right, Kelly. I'm protecting you from being mm. sued. Mm. <laughs> no. Um, high school, Scotch College. Was yeah, that a yeah. bit of a surprise or you fitted mm. in nicely? No, I fitted in pretty well. It was a, right. It's a great school. It was a co-ed school. Right. And, um, you know, good education, good teachers. Um, but school's school, you know. You can't yeah. wait to leave. And um, right. but I I um I realised that pretty soon after leaving school that I'd been a big fish in a small pond and even though I thought I was pretty smart I actually knew nothing about stuff because as soon as I left I my sister Frances had been an exchange student in Japan with Rotary Exchange and I thought that was a pretty amazing idea she went away for a year and she lived with Japanese families mm-hmm. this is like straight out of high school. And I was very competitive with my sister, so I thought I'll do that. I'll give that a crack. So I applied to a group called AFS, American Field Services, and AFS mm-hmm. sent thousands of kids right. straight out of high school on foreign exchange programs all around the world every year. 
And I applied to go to Italy, France, and Spain. He didn't get any of them, did you? In the Europhile, and yeah. they said, you're going to Indonesia. Right. Good. And I said, Indo where? Indo where, yeah. yeah. It's only, you know, 100Ks or two from here. That's right. And you said, Indo where? Indo freaking where. What year was this? It was 1984. All right. So, and did you go? I did. And what I spent it? a year in Central Java. Tell us about it. Um, Central Java, um, so Indonesia is an is a immense country, 17,500 islands, the largest archipelago uh, nation on earth, stretching from Papua all the way up to Aceh, up, up past Singapore there. It's the most multicultural uh, country on earth. It's got probably close to 800 languages, if you include all the Papuan languages. But it is a Javanese empire. And uh, meaning that the Javanese um, running from Jakarta run the country. And they, they think it's, a, it's a very complicated story. I understand that, but tell us your experience personal, there as, as, as personal. an 18, 18-year-old, 17-year-old? Yeah, 18-year-old. 18-year-old. You're in from an Indian, Indonesian family. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What year was this? 84. 84. Did, 84. They, did they have running water? Did yes, they did. They had it cold. Cold. Cold water. And, right. But they were a middle-class family. My, right. my um, father, Suido, is a doctor. Still a doctor. Mm-hmm. And um, so a middle-class family in a very poor country in Samarang, a very large industrial city on the north coast of central Java, hot as hell. Mm-hmm. Very few Europeans there, like none. I was like the only little white boy in, mm-hmm. in the whole town. And it was a real slap. And I couldn't speak the language. They couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak Indonesian. The only thing I could say from grade seven Indonesian was gosok gigi, which means brush your teeth. Well, that's a good thing. So my hygiene... So dental, when they told you to brush your teeth, at yeah, least you knew. Yeah, dental hygiene was <laughs> yeah. A1, but I had no idea what was going on. Um, but they were a beautiful family, and they're still my Indonesian family. Right. And so here we are, sort of, you know, 35, almost 40 years later, mm. and they're still my Indonesian family. We've had this love affair for mm. 40 years, and I've taken my kids to meet their Indonesian grandparents. Right. Did, uh, were, were you religiously inclined when you were younger? No. How about when you got to Indonesia? Was it religion played a... An important part well, of the I mean, family? In, in a strange way, it did, but not really. I mean, so Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. They call it the body of Islam for that reason. But it's a very moderate Islam. It's very hot there. It's very chilled out. Very few women wear the veil. Very, almost no one wears the burqa. Hmm. Um, yeah, people go to mosque on Fridays. No, I'm just saying 84. 84. When yeah. you're a kid. It hasn't yeah, changed. It hasn't changed. That's it what it was yeah. like. I mean, look, it, it's changed in some ways, but it's pretty mm. much the same now. Right. Uh, my family, very middle-class family. Mm. Sure, they were slightly inclined towards Islam, but not in a, in a very powerful way. My father, the doctor, completely um, secular. Right. Secular bloke. Yeah. Um, had no time for uh, for God, really. Yeah. Um, liked a little nip of whiskey every now and then. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, and he was a philosophical man. And uh, read a lot of sort of Buddhism and Hinduism. All of these religions have existed in Indonesia. Indonesia is like a palimpsest of religions and cultures, hundreds of waves of migration over thousands of years, stacked on top of each other like a strata of culture. Um, So religion wasn't a big part of it, but culture was. They were a very cultural family, and and that's why I was matched with them, because I came from a sort of a theatrical, artistic background, and they found a family who were that way inclined. So they took me to go and see the shadow puppets and they took me to go and see the temples out in the mountains and they took me to, to go and see the theatre, the, the central Javanese theatre, which tell all the stories of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, the, the old Hindu classics, because, of course, it was a Hindu empire way before it was Islamic. So it was a great, it was a great match and, and they taught me so much about 
the history of the country, the the the, the culture that the, the, they loved food, and we'd go out almost every second night and go to night markets and, right. and eat you know, Javanese food, Malay food, Chinese food. Um, so, so was this the defining moment of your life that year? Yeah, definitely. Right. Changed my life completely. Right. Yeah, yeah. How did how did it do that? I mean, it 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 broke my sort of Eurocentric white Australian. Um, mindset you know like I'd grown up in I hadn't didn't even know any Aboriginal people growing up South Australia is a very whitewashed state and I didn't meet an Indigenous person or become friends until I was at uni you know after I returned from Indonesia but so, so even though I had this sort of these generous parents who had taught me respect I didn't have a, a broad cultural background or knowledge at all mm-hmm. and I and you know I finished high school in 83 which was just when other side of the frontier and the sort of the, 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 the new wave of Australian history texts were coming out. So I didn't get any of that. You know, I learnt that Indigenous Australia were hunter-gatherers who had unchanged for 40,000 years mm. since Mungo Man, you know. That's right, and they used to stand on one leg and look, look into... Look into the far, far distance, yeah. that's right. Yeah, um, yeah so that, that was actually better than my education. We didn't, that actually didn't exist when I went to school. Yeah, right. That's yeah. what it was like in the 50s, Incredible, 60s. Yeah. Didn't exist. Yeah. I met my first... Uh, Indigenous person like you when I went to university. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So what university did you go to? Adelaide Uni. Oh, right. And I started off doing uh, an arts degree, which mm-hmm. I did most of, and I did, um, I did uh, anthropology, Australian history, philosophy and drama, because mm-hmm. I was always a thespian, Joe. I a look, thespian. I, I like that. used to do lots can you, of, can lots you, of can, can you quote some Shakespeare at me? Make me feel... Oh, some Shakespeare. Make me feel educated, you know, educated. Why don't I quote some Robbie Burns to you, some Oh, my God. (laughs) All right, all right. (coughs) Excuse me. The Scottish ruling class. I prefer your honour, Sonsi face, great chieftain of the pudding race. I bone that I take your place, pinch triper theorem. For well, I are worthy of a grace as long as me arm. Look, I don't mind you insulting me, but I don't don't want you insulting Kelly, okay? (laughs) That was the first. That was uh, wicked. That's wicked. the first stanza of the Ode to the Haggis by oh, Robbie Burns. Isn't that wonderful? Beautiful, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, have you ever eaten haggis, Kelly? I have. Did you mm. like it? Yeah, it was quite tasty. Yeah, that's before she did. Yeah, it's good gear. My, I grew up in like this British enclave in Geelong. People from all over the British Isles. We had like a social club, and they have like Robbie Burns night every year, and they had haggis. Yeah, that's yeah. where I had well, it. Haggis is like a, a, a farmer's pate. It's like this sort of mixture of wheat and barley and guts all stuffed into a sheep's stomach and boiled. Mm, There's only one problem. Kelly's a vegan now. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) maybe you can make a vegan haggis. They make it. I bet they do. (laughs) Really? I've never had it, but I'm thinking, why? Was that experience eating the haggis which made you into a vegan? No, I enjoyed it. I said I enjoyed it, didn't I? I I could see how it would, though, because it's not a very pretty-looking thing. It's disgusting. It's tasty. It's lovely. It's disgusting. I had haggis in Scotland. It's disgusting. You cut it up with a a, a a knife called a dirk, (laughs) and it just sort of... Spews all right, all right. out onto the plate. Right. They throw you out of Adelaide University. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and um, what, so, what did you end up with? Oh, I did, I did. I did that first part of the arts degree, finished yeah. most of it, and then I thought I'm going to be poor for the rest of my life, and yeah. had a bit of a panic attack, and yeah. thought I'll go into advertising. Advertising. Yeah, because I'm a cartoonist and an artist, and right. I thought I can do I can do that, and I could probably do the strategic side as well. So right. I did a business degree in marketing. Where did this cartoon? 
business come into it? You said you were a cartoonist. Yes, yes. You haven't mentioned that up to now. Still, but I mean, back back then you were yeah. already a cartoonist. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you I grew haven't up. Mentioned that. Up no, I grew to up now. grew up being a being an artist, a sculptor, and a, yeah. and a cartoonist, yeah. and and yeah. doing all, all manner of sort of painting, and and yeah. a very very keen on the arts, and that was kind of the thing that I. Thought I'd, I thought I'd always be an artist and an actor, is what I people say. What are you going to do when you grow up, Charlie? Oh, I think I'll be an actor. I'll be an actor. And they laugh. They say, What are you going to do for a real job? That's right, yeah. yeah this is before yeah. they'd even invented oh, neighbours, oh, so oh, there was no yeah, work. Yeah. So they threw you. You left university, the world's your oyster. Yeah. Which direction did you go? Into? I went straight overseas. <laughs> um, <laughs> I buggered off, Joe. Where? I bug it off. Well, first thing I went, I went back to Indonesia right. to go and see my my family in Sumatra, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was fantastic. This is that first recontact with them to say, you know, I haven't forgotten you. Yeah. And my my Indonesian. I hope they didn't slam the door in your face. No, when they're up. such generous people. The Indonesians are generous people, and, and look, considering what they suffered under the Dutch, they're uh-huh. extremely generous to um to Australians, and they have a generally favourable view of Australia, despite the sort of the, the ridiculous politics that exists between our two countries, the social relationship between academics and artists, between the uh, Indonesia and Australia is very strong. Um, that level of engagement is very strong, and and I've continued that all through my life. But then after that, I went to I chased a girlfriend over to London. Oh, Do you the, know how many times people say, say that? that? Yeah, oh, it's, it's I reckon yes. one out of three. Yeah, really, sure. they left yes. the country yeah. chasing a yeah. skirt or a pair of pants, yeah, or, yeah. depending on their sexual preferences. Sure. Yeah. Who knows yeah. what? We've had all types of yeah, yeah, on the program. Yeah, yeah. You know, love, totally. lust. Yeah. yeah, and obviously it didn't work out, did it? No. <laughs> It never does. It never does. <laughs> no, no. We stayed together for a few years, and and and, and it was great. And uh, she's a great person. And but um, yeah, got to hang out in London, and that was at the time of the first Gulf War. Right. So I lobbed into London in the build-up to the first Gulf mm. War. You're, you're, Winter you're, in London. You're worried about Sam Hussein's missiles hitting London. Obviously, you believed all the propaganda. I, I mean, it was just such a beat-up, wasn't it? Oh my God, what a beat-up! And, we- and weapons know, of mass destruction. Oh my God! You know, and and it, you know, this is the first Gulf War, which is yeah. which is Q8. You know, mm. and um, yeah, that was really interesting. And so I went to the big protest march there, which was one of the biggest marches ever in in London. Yep. Enormous, huge numbers of people, and we made placards and went down there and you know mm-hmm. hippied out and mm-hmm. smoked joints mm-hmm. in Trafalgar Square. Were you? Dispersed, um, it, no, Baton actually. Charges, no, I mean, there was, a, there was a bit of that going on, but we didn't yeah. get close to that. We were sort of, we were sort of two out of it, I think. All right. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so, how are you earning a crust in London? Not um, with your cartoons, were you? Yeah. Well, I I stayed there for a, a little while, and I had a couple of little jobs just working in pubs and stuff. And and mm. um, but I was mainly just hanging out with my girlfriend and a, and a couple of other mates from uni, old old really good friends of mine. Um. And then we buggered off from there as fast as we could because it was cold and miserable. Mm. And uh, we got a van and we headed for Spain. And we drove... As you, as you do. As you as do. You as you would. As you um, do. I mean, I mean... Yeah. And we cruised around Europe for, yeah. for a couple of months, yeah. five of us in a comedy yeah. Well, van. Kelly's a bit of a, you know, Europophile. She lived there for a number oh, of years. I love getting in the van and getting <laughs> yeah. out there. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. That's the best thing the about, best. about yeah. England is yeah. you can leave yeah. England and go to oh. Europe. You know? <laughs> I prefer hotels, but that's a different <laughs> you know, horses for courses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like certain, not certain not, not even new hostels. I don't mind a sleeping bag on out out in the fresh air, but yeah. vans. No, I don't sleep in vans. Do yeah. you sleep in vans? I do. I love it. You love it. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. I've known about your van experiences. Yeah, vans, vans are good. Yeah. yeah. And then I, then my girlfriend and I went to Paris, and mm. we found this. I got a job as a cartoonist. Cartoonist mm. in Paris, um, doing uh, doing sort of um, what would you say? Uh, 
doing copying work, basically. All right. Yep. And but it was good, and uh, we found a really cool little place in the centre of Paris um, that was given to us on the cheap by the these two sort of aristocrats from the south of France um, who just loved that we were Australians and young and, and vivacious and those mm. they said. They, they, didn't, they didn't have an apartment next door for peephole, did they? Well, well I, I mean, who knows? Oh, I mean, that's what happened. We, we certainly put on a show. Yeah, well, that's, that's what happened to me and my late wife in Venice. Really? <laughs> we, oh, beautiful. We got, Ellen, we got this... Really, you couldn't, you can't find a place in Venice. No, we just, kidding. we just rocked up, and yeah. there was this bloke on the railway station. He said, "Oh, I got a place there." And, I, ah. and we said, "Oh, yeah, well, that's cheap." We thought we yeah. went there, and when we left a few days later, we noticed that there was a peephole. Obviously, he got, he got his two, he got his two dollars worth. So you, you, <laughs> didn't, you didn't realize, but you're actually part of the Venice BNR. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah, yeah. You, you just, I mean, if you were there, you'd be taking films. Wow. <laughs> so, so you, you were the Australian Pavilion. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not a lot cool. of people got this. Was only one. Show. This was eighty one okay. before you were even born. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, did you come back to the old dart? No, that's the old dart thing. Did you ever come back here to the yeah. convict land? Yeah. Well, then my, then my what happened? Um, my mum died. Right. So I came home, mm-hmm. and I didn't go back. I was going to go back, um, but it was just too much, and I had to organise stuff here, and that was a real shock, and. Um, so I moved back to South Australia um, and <clears throat> didn't really know what to do with myself for a bit because I had this, had this marketing degree and I was thinking, uh, um, then I got a couple of jobs working for advertising agencies and, uh, and doing cartooning for them. A little bit of strategy stuff because I can bullshit. Um, no. No. Oh, Charles. You have noticed, Charlie. Joe. I haven't noticed. I thought, or oh, you were telling us the gospel truth. Gospel. Um, <laughs> But while I was working for Leo Burnett and a couple of other <clears throat> large agencies, mm. I started noticing that, and, and I had a couple of friends who were working in accounts, I started noticing that all the good people were getting fired or were leaving, and all the wankers were getting promoted. And this seemed to be like a just an industry standard. standard right. And I was like, I, I can't do this. I can't do it. It's going to kill me. Um, so... I started looking for other stuff and I decided I, I really wanted to, to do theatre. You know, I wanted to, to follow what had always been my passion and so I joined, um, uh, I joined up with the Adelaide University Theatre Guild and I did a bunch of shows with them and that was great with an incredibly talented bunch of people, who, many of whom went on to do state and, and national theatre. And we did Shakespeare and American plays and English plays and some Australian plays. And that was great. And that sort of got me back into that world. And I love that world. It's a very generous and, and genuine and engaged and, 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 and social world, you know. Mm, and it brings out the best in me. It, it allows me to sort of to be more in touch with my emotions. It, it and didn't help your bank account, did it? It didn't help my bank account no, at all. No, but no. it helped you. It did. It did yeah, help well, me. Well, people don't understand that, do they? Yeah, and I had lots of jobs. You know, I worked yeah. in restaurants and I worked in pubs and I did this and I yeah, did that and, yeah. and, and that was all, all well and good. And then my dad died and then and dad left me a little bit of money and so I bought an old warehouse with that money uh, called the Glen Osmond Silver Mine. And it's it, it, it well it's it was actually called Woodley's Winery. It's in Glen Osmond on the edge of Adelaide, and it's this this small this sort of small it's large but small warehouse. The warehouse was built in 1900 to house Woodley wines, and Woodleys were a very famous winery in South Australia. They made a lot of very famous reds, Queen Adelaide reds, very famous in the 50s. 
Um, your birth wines, probably. Yeah, they were my birth yeah. wines. Yeah. And um, so I, I, I prefer a fifty-one pen files, to be honest. Well, Sorry. there you go. But you know what? This this is on the same aspects as as those yes. great Grange yes. vineyards that, mm. that produce the the, the Grange yep. reds. Woodley's had the same aspect aspects. Yep. So they're on the right. hillside facing right. west, yep. just on the edge of Adelaide as it turns into the Adelaide Hills. Beautiful but, but for why did you buy a warehouse? What was the because plan? I wanted to have a I wanted to have a studio. I I was in a band. Mm-hmm. I didn't mention that I was in a band called Happy Davros. And, and Happy what? Happy Davros. You know Davros from the Daleks. No, exterminate. You well, I'll be. Oh, that one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so no, the, 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 the guy who invented, they were happy. They were happy. This is Happy Davros. Oh right. So our okay. symbol was Davros. Is that little freak? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In his and, little chair and, and, with drums. Yeah, yeah, and you were happy. All right. Happy I, I assume you weren't. Uh, uh, Household name, were you? We got played on Triple J. Did you? Yeah, we recorded uh, one album and we got played. We had two songs played on Triple J. Right. So that was our set at high point. Yeah, what number seventy-seven? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> number seventy-seven without the bullet. Yeah. And um, one, actually, one of my mates, my drummer from that band, was a, a guy called Phil Curry, who's mm. now a very famous political journalist for right. the for the uh, Fin Review. Oh, right. he's, oh, he's chi- that really great guy. Yeah, yeah. Philip Curry, yeah. dark hair. He's got balding with dark hair. Oh, he's speaking. Are you going on, Phil? Uh, uh, talks oh, like that. I think he's great. Isn't he's he? brilliant. He's on the Insiders, and, he, oh, yeah, and he's like very him. direct, and he's super funny. He grew up in Peterborough. He's really smart. Yeah, he's super smart. He was a scientist. He was, he was a laboratory scientist and a great drummer. Um, right. He grew up in Peterborough, out out in the bush, yeah. and was playing. In sort of 60, 40, um, you know, dance bands like for the old people when he was like 13, you know, yeah, going around yeah. in the van with old with men playing yeah. in, the, in the band. And then he went on and did science and then he, he applied for a cadetship at, at, um, at the advertiser. Four times they turned him. They turned him down three times. They finally took him and now he's probably the best political journalist in the country. Mm. So, you know, we played in that band for a couple of years. It was great. We played heaps of gigs and I thought I'd always play music at that point. Right. So I just loved it. Mm. And so part of the reason for getting the warehouse was that we had place to, to jam and record. Right, right. I set it up. Uh, we had we had a lot of artists work there. I was working there. Um, produced a magazine for a while. Was working, doing writing for other magazines. Um, wrote for a gay magazine um, for a couple of years doing food reviews. Um, as a as a food reviewer called Bubbles Rothermere. <laughs> Bubbles. Um, <laughs> So my, my, my friend Greg and I, Greg was Edwina Foxcroft, right. and, and I was I was Bubbles Rothermere, Rothermere. and we would write these outrageous food reviews right. that mainly talked about what we were, the fictitious costumes that we were wearing, right. and, and the fragrances that we in the cars we drove to the yeah, restaurants. Right. <laughs> so we got free meals yeah. at all these great restaurants. It was brilliant, um, and. I think that was the highlight of your life till now. It was freaking great. It sounds my, brilliant. My, my, it, sounds the biggest, the, it sounds the biggest scam I've heard for a while. And a really positive scam. It was a positive scam. You know, not Hasley. Yeah, you yeah, know, you're yeah. doing a great service. Playing these two yeah. transgender women. Yeah. You never knew. But they were sort of pre- or post-surgery. We ended yeah. up doing a theatre show called Thespian Fantasy. That's right. With, with the two of us live on stage yeah. doing, doing Bubbles and Edwina. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, but then... In so that so I had my little my little warehouse and that was up and running and we started to do exhibitions there and we we're doing gigs there and we started to sell stuff and, and that sort of started to to become a little economy, but then I started doing theatre sports with a guy called Jack Smith from Canada from Loose Moose Loose Moose invented theatre sports Canadian theatre company and Jack arrived in Adelaide and he had done a lot of stand up comedy and he picked a bunch of people from the the impro scene to go and start a comedy club um, and called Bolt's Cafe in Rundle Street, Rundle Street East. And so we were all young and inexperienced, and Jack taught us how to do stand-up. And I was the first MC 
for this comedy club for the first two years. Mm-hmm. And from that, a whole bunch of great comedians came. And we ran that club for about three or four years um, until I started our own club called the Rhino Room, which is still going today. So oh. it's 22 years, the Rhino Room. Oh. Music and comedy in Adelaide. And the oh. home of Adelaide comedy is the Rhino Room. Right. And we poached the comedy scene from Zoran and his evil um, <laughs> followers <laughs> at Bolts. <laughs> Across. His name was Zoran. Yeah. And, and he was an evil evil man uh, who tried to manipulate and take advantage of all us young things. Yeah. And we took the whole scene and took it to the right no, he, he was just a businessman, mate. He was yeah, yeah, yeah. Make he, it was. Back. he was. He was a producer. He was, he was a, a typical producer. producer. Yeah. yeah, all right. Absolute. Yeah, and look, he did get some gigs for us, yeah. but he also just, you know, took advantage yeah. of us. Anyway, we got our own thing going, and the, and the Rhino Room comedy scene is still going. And if you mm. go to the comedy festival in Adelaide or the Fringe or any of the festival, mm-hmm. all, the, all the best comedy acts and a lot of good music acts yeah. Yeah. are at Rhino. Yeah, you're not getting any money from that, are you, either? A little bit, you know? Oh, a little really? bit. It's been, still, a, it's still. Been, still it's been a great little earner, you know? Oh, like it's a great? small place. It's, it, yeah. the first, our first venue was only licensed for 150 people. Yeah. Now it's about 250. And there's a little income stream. It's well, a little income Strength. Well, that gives you an opportunity to go in different directions. So what different directions have you gone into in the last uh, decade or so? Yeah, well, th- then then I sort of got sick of my, my what I thought were bloody genius ideas just dissipating <laughs> into hot air <laughs> in front of crowds who found me mildly amusing. Yeah, the key word was mildly. Uh, and and I, so I got I, – I, the very first digital camera came out in about 1996, a Sony three-chip camera, and it was a camera you could buy for $1,000 and you could put it on television, broadcast quality. Mm-hmm. So I got one of them and I went to Hong Kong in 97 for the handover to, and I made my first documentary about the, ha- the Hong Kong handover. It's called Hong Kong Fui and the Great Chinese Takeaway. Right. <laughs> And uh, so I spent three weeks in Hong Kong following following people around, going to all the gigs, sussing out the scene there, speaking to Chinese, speaking to the English, watching them weep into their overpriced cocktails mm. and preparing for Prince Charles, as he once was then, to arrive and do the handover. Did you get any of the food? You were able to put your hands out, greasy hands out and pinch some of the food, mate. That's what I'm interested oh, in. Of course, <laughs> of course, of course. Um, and so that sort of... That was my first doco, and, and I've been a documentary maker ever since. Since then? Yeah. Thanks. So it was just serendipity, was it? And, and I've sort of continued with other stuff. Well, all, tell, all tell all us about some of these documentaries. So that was the first film, was the Hong Kong film, and no one's really seen it. It's on it's online, but uh, it didn't get a broadcast. Um, it was kind of a bit didactic. Um, I, st- I still stand by everything, the, the hardcore research I put into it. It taught me to research for um, for public domain publications, for, for mm-hmm. books and, and documentaries right. and so on. And to cross my T's and dot my I's because I didn't want to look a fool. Uh, if you, you put these things out there, you don't want to look a fool. If, if you if, if you've just come no, up with some hang bullshit, on, and, hang on, hang on. You're yeah. a stand-up comedian. What, what's the problem with looking like well, a fool? That's 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 the other side of the coin. You know? <laughs> All right, that's right. Okay. The, the, the fool and, and so the, you want a bit of dignity and gravitas. That's right. That's as right. As a documentary, as a documentary producer. maker. Yeah, All right. Yeah. So what, what did the Hong Kong want lead lead to next? So so then. Then the next year in 98, and sorry, 99, I ended up, a mate of mine who's a school teacher in Papua New Guinea said, come up, because we'd always gone camping a lot and hiking a lot together, mm-hmm. very keen campers, in South Australia in the desert and Flinders Ranges, and Simon Ellis, great school teacher in Papua New Guinea, called me and said, hey, come up, we're going to go hiking up in the, in the Owen Stanley Ranges, up in these giant mountains. Mm-hmm. So me and three other mates went up there, and what he didn't tell us is that we were going to, we, we flew 
up to Venemo on the north coast of Papua New Guinea, really close to the border between Papua New Guinea and West Papua, which is part of Indonesia. And even though I've been in Indonesia for 15 years, I knew nothing about West Papua because it's a complete blackout in Indonesia about West Papua because of the ongoing genocide and land grab there and the same story in Australia. So I'd never mm-hmm. heard about it here either. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we crossed over the border. We walked through the jungle across what? this. Did you cross over accidentally? Or no, 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 because we were going to go walking in the highlands right, of right. West Papua in this place called the Ballium Valley, right. very famous river valley mm-hmm. high up in the 3,000 metre high plateau right. of those mountains in and West so Papua. And you didn't expect any trouble? Didn't expect anything. Didn't know anything. Didn't right. even know they spoke Indonesian there. And I speak fluent Indonesian. Right. So we, we, we cross the border and people, and, and th- there are Melanesians, like really black people speaking fluent Indonesian. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Mm. So then we, we go to Jayapura, we fly up in, into the Ballium Valley and we go walking around the Ballium Valley with the Dani people mm-hmm. of the Ballium Valley. And they're all cruising around. They're farmers and they're old school farmers. And it's a, this is a very undeveloped place. What do you mean by old school farmers? So they like slash and burn or? Very, I mean, sophisticated old school farming. farming we're, we're talking right. farming. We're talking probably the oldest farmers on earth. I mean, right. the, the whole story of the Levant and mm. ten or 15,000 year old farming mm. is a joke when these guys have been farming up there for 30,000 years, mm. you know. I mean, minimum. So, so, minimum. So how do they farm? They farm very rich, small plots right. in in large family groups. Mm-hmm. All of their buildings are like these beautiful sort of fungi on the side of the hillside, all made from bush materials, these sort of curved roofs, mm. thatched curves, roofs, beautiful walking tracks, all all uh, lined and trimmed with, with onions and plants and right. edibles and just plants growing everywhere. Mm. Most Most incredible... Um, intense, I guess, sort of um, almost Stone Age um, farming, you know, old, mm. super, super old school. Right. Um, so this, this sounds like the second defining moment of your life. It was, it was. So mm. when we got in, when we'd been walking through there, with our, we, we had guides, local Dani men, and we walked together for almost two weeks. And, and every night we would stay in these visitors' huts. Every village has a visitors' hut on the edge of the village. And they're all made of bush materials, beautiful sprung bamboo floors. And because I spoke Indonesian, as things got on, and, and I've been talking a lot to Sergius, who was our guide, who became a great friend of mine. Um, he was a Dani man um, who spoke fluent English and Indo and, and German and a bunch of other stuff because he'd worked in this sort of tourist nexus. And we talked a lot. And then they, people started asking me questions about East Timor. They said, well, what, what, why, is, why isn't Australia paying, paying attention to us? And, and I, we were like, what do you mean? Us, you know, what are you talking about? And then they started to tell us these stories about disappeared sons, about whole villages burnt to death, about um, groups of men machine gunned, about mass rape, about fifty years of drip drip genocide. And and we were completely out of our depth. Like we'd gone there on this sort of like exotic Neolithic hiking holiday, and we suddenly realised that we were in a war zone. Mm. And all those little Javanese uh, or Indonesian army checkpoints that we'd gone through and had to show our travel papers suddenly made sense you know and they were all manned by sort of pimply 18 year old javanese boys with m16s mm. in, in in full sort of like american brand new american gear mm. and we realized that we were really out of our depth and we, we didn't know what the hell we were doing and we left and came back to australia to this deafening silence so then i started researching what the hell is this story about west papua having been Indonesian and got a sense of the Indonesian Republic and its history and what had happened there, but never heard a squeak about this joint. 
Anyway, so I learnt that when when Indonesia became independent in forty five and through to forty nine, the one of the last deals, one of the last sort of great colonial deals that was forced on them by Kennedy, was uh, uh, much against the wishes of the Dutch, was that. West Papua, which the Dutch had singled out to be an independent country because it was so, it was Melanesian and so far removed from the rest of Asian Indonesia that it needed to be independent. But they were forced by Kennedy um, in the, the so called New York Agreement to hand West, Pap- West Papua to Indonesia. And it was very important to Suharto mm. because the shape of Indonesia is the shape of the Dutch East Indies Trading Company. Right. 350 years of this. Uh, Dutch uh, coffee plantation. Right. And so th- that map became the Republic like of Indonesia. Indonesia. Which included West Papua. Inclu- and that's on the map. And so mm. it would be like Australia without, like visually, it would be like mm. Australia without mm. Western Australia. It just doesn't make visual sense, sense to the Indonesians. Indonesians right. They were so inculcated with this idea of mm. sort of, of Aceh to Morocco. Mm. There's a song called Aceh, Aceh to, to Morocco. Yeah. And this is the song, and this is a nationalist song so. about we are. We are, we, are, we are post-colonialists. Mm. We are taking back our power from the Dutch and West Papua right. was sacrificed on that order. So, so did these experiences lead you to new documentaries? So then I, we'd shot all this amazing footage up there in the Dani and, and I got involved in a, in a fairly bizarre penis gourd ceremony because yeah. uh, I spoke Indonesian and mm. am a bit of a fool. Like they couldn't find a penis gourd big enough? Small boy. enough, that's, that's right. I know what you're going to say, yeah. Um, so I got stripped naked by the, these Dani warriors and, and then they painted me up and covered mm. me in feathers and yeah. put a penis gourd on me and then mm. took me out in front of the village and I had to I danced That's, around with them yeah. all and it was really fun and yeah. everyone laughed at the, at the skinny white dude and, and we had a great day. So we had this footage and we had this other great footage but I didn't know what to do with it because I couldn't make something foolish about this mm. thing that was now racking my brain. That was just, mm. It was just eating away at me like a, you know, like a worm, you know. Because then I started to realise that we were talking about hundreds of thousands of murdered people really? and, and this ongoing... And, but, but the reason for it, the major reason for it, is that first reason of nationalism. The second reason is that it's a new El Dorado. You know, it, it's, right. it's a, it's a mountain resources, of gold. The resources are extraordinary. Extraordinary. Because Forestry. Second largest gold. island on earth. Yeah, yeah. it's just extraordinary. You know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's enormous island. Mm. It only looks small because it's next to Australia. Yeah, I want to get back to you. I want to get back to you. So... When the uh, Wednesday, lazy Wednesday afternoon crowd left the studio when mm. we first started, mm. they were wishing you luck for tomorrow. What's happening tomorrow? Oh, tomorrow we're doing this. What's this? I can't. This is, I, don't think, I don't think our listeners can see it. This, You've got to describe it. This is, this is called Crime Scene Australia. It's a revisionist gonzo comic book mm-hmm. that I produced with Robbie Thorpe, who, right. who's another presenter here. at the. Yeah, we know Robbie. You yeah. know Robbie. Stalwart yeah. of the of 3CR. Yeah. Um, yeah, Crime Scene Australia, it's it's a revisionist history of Australia. So, so where are you going to launch that? Yeah, tomorrow night, uh, 6 till 7, at mm. Wolfhound Cafe on Brunswick, Brunswick Street. Right. Everyone's welcome. Please come Everyone's along. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's welcome. Great. It's open to anybody. Great. I'd like, love you guys to come. Yeah. There's, there'll be some wine there. Yeah. There'll be some, a little bit of food there. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll do a little presentation. We'll just talk about it. We're, we're going to launch this first edition. We want to do right. eight of them. Eight, right. That, that will go from 1770 to 2024. Right, excellent. Um, right. And, and a little birdie told me that you're uh, doing the quintessential West Papuan documentary that uh, you've been doing a lot of work on 
doing this documentary? Well, I, I made a film. So, so what happened from mm. all of that, all of that sort of angst and not mm. knowing what to do is I ended up making it. T- it took me 10 years to work mm. out what to do with that footage and how to make something about mm. West Papua. So I made the first feature documentary about the genocide in West Papua. Mm-hmm. It's called Strange Birds in Paradise. And I made it to about, uh, I don't know, 12, 12, 13 years ago. That's right. And it's like a sort of a, it, it gives you a wrap up of, of how it occurred. How did West Papua become Indonesian? Uh, wh- what are the cultural forces at play there? And what are, what are some of the really important stories? So in the film, I stay with a, I went back to West Papua in 2006 to make this film. And I went and lived with a Dani family for a couple of weeks. So the centre of the film is about living with a Dani family in the Ballium Valley. And then from there, we, we sort of associate to all the geopolitical, the historical Mm. Um, stuff. So did this documentary kind of close the door to Indonesia for you? Yeah, it did for a while. I, I didn't mm. go back for uh, four years, um, which was the longest period away from Indonesia. Right. And um, uh, and then I sort of put my toe in the water and went back. And by that by that stage, by sort of five years after the film, they had bigger fish to fry. Right, right. And have you got any projects on the uh, frying pan using the, the fish to fry analogy? Yes, yes. Uh, fishy, fishy projects. Fishy um, projects. There's the fish. Cancerian, exactly. Crab. Um, yeah, well, I'm working on two films for next year. What, two one, films. Two films for next year. God, you're greedy. Well, two look, films, mate. You need lots of irons in the fire if you're going to do something as speculative as what I do. What do you mean speculative? Well, making docu- making films is one of the most speculative um, right. uh, sort of choices. So people aren't knocking on your door saying, "Please make something for me." No. Well, Strange Birds in Paradise was nominated for four Australian Academy Awards. Right. Didn't win, but it got nominated. That's just excellent. Yeah. Which is amazing. It is. Um, but it hasn't made life much easier for me because I tend mm. to choose topics that are close to my heart and mm. in that cross-cultural human rights space. So, so what, what are the two – can you discuss the films or not? Yeah, so the, the major film that we're looking to shoot next year is called The Oldest Song on Earth. And I'm working with uh, Carol Carpenny, who is a musician. He was in a band called Us Mob, who were the first Indigenous Australian rock band. Um, so Bart Willoughby's band, Wrong so- um, No Fixed Address, and mm-hmm. Us Mob came out of CASM, uh, which is a, um, the Centre for Aboriginal Study in Music uh, in 1980. And Carol and I have been working together. We, we, we've produced theatre shows, but we're great mates. And we worked. We made a TV series for um, Red Bull a few years ago. And so this film is about Carol and his three sons driving from Adelaide to Broome to go and collect a piece of super significant song and dance cultural material from the Bonuba nation because they've been holding this Nutanjeri, and Carol's a Nutanjeri man from the lakes in South Australia. The Bonuba people up there in, in, the, in the Kimberley have been holding this song and dance, a Nutanjeri song and dance, for 170 years. How did, I that, mean, I mean, how did that come about? Because of the Red Kangaroo Dreaming song right, line right. and marriage and trade on that song line mm-hmm. that goes all the way from Broome through south through the deserts and then to, to south to Adelaide, across to Melbourne, down to Tassie, on that super highway of culture and trade and marriage, they would swap these important songs and dances, and one of the ones that was that was held by the Banuba people because they knew that the Nurunjeri were copping it on the chin during invasion. Mm. They've held this in, as custodians, and they explained it. He explained it to me. Dylan Andrews is an old uh, elder from the Bonuba. He explained it to me. He said, like, if someone invaded a European country, they'd take the crown jewels and they'd hide them under a mountain yep. in some neighbouring country. Which they used that's, to do. That's what we've done. 
That's what we've done. Mm. So when we were up there shooting a film called Motorkite Dreaming a few years ago, Carol and I, Dylan took Carol aside and said, we've got your Naranjeri song and dance here. And I know you. I know you're a song man. I know you're a big culture man. If you mm-hmm. come back, mm-hmm. we'll teach it to you and you can take it back to Naranjeri. So you're going to follow all that? Yeah. So Carol's going to drive with his three lads, his three mm-hmm. adult sons, mm-hmm. who, who all sing and dance mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the culture that he has scared from pieces from here and there from from because they got moved off there yes. finally moved out, out of Naranjeri mm. completely in mm-hmm. in the in the sort of late fifties mm. early sixties and they got moved up to Point Pierce one of these sort of collection missions up and up on the yep. edge of the desert yep. um, so big yeah big project um, talking to all sorts of people trying to get support got a little bit of interest from ABC and a few others but you know oh. it's it's it, it really it's is tough getting tough. getting the yeah. Getting the resources to do this stuff, especially independent, and uh, you've got limited resources. And what's the second project? Second project is a film in Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. It's a foreign language film. It's a political thriller. It's a drama. It's a drama. Yep, it's my first drama. How are you going to pay the actors? Well, I've, we've already raised um, a significant amount of money from private mm-hmm. investors, right. and we're in negotiation with a whole bunch of state mm-hmm. and federal bodies, right? Um, and and in co-production with a whole bunch of um, Papua New Guinean producers. Um, it's a small budget film. It's two million dollars, but that's a small budget film. It is small budget film, yeah. And because of our documentary experience, we can go and make something amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in Tokpisan, which is what we call Pigeon English. It's the national language of Papua yep. New Guinea. Yep. It's a completely Papuan, Papuan story. All Papuan actors, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we're hoping to shoot it next year. Can I ask you something off the grid? How do you? cope with the mosquitoes nah well i've had malaria mate so not i know well. that's what i'm saying not yeah. well have you caught malaria i have had malaria yeah, yeah. yeah. i had what, malaria quite what, a while ago what was that like that was terrible yeah i, I mean I, I lay on, my, on my, my sofa for about on my lounge for about three weeks thinking that i had terrible flu yep then i felt something weird in my in my entrails and thought mm. oh this is not this good. is not, this a, not no. good <laughs> so i was in adelaide and i went into the doctor and they, they took that took me into the exotic diseases oh clinic. yes the infectious in disease adelaide exactly. hospital yeah, and, then, yes. and then i was like a, i was like the most popular kid in town they, yeah well they, we don't see malaria that often everyone was coming <laughs> every student would come through me and say hey you feel mate oh yeah <laughs> and lucky it was the it was the the lesser uh, fatal form of malaria yeah, the, there's, a, yeah. there's a cerebral malaria which oh, was kill very you. nasty yeah. Um, yeah malaria kills more people than any, anyone that's right um, so yeah I had it and that was a long time ago um, I haven't had it since it hasn't came do, come you, ta- do you take precautions oh yeah I do I, I take pills when I'm there right and sleep under mozzie nets yeah I think people you know, take disease. They don't understand there's a lot of nasty diseases, nasty up that. Malaria point. is just a massive story in, yeah. in Papua New Guinea and Indonesia. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the story. It is the story. Yeah. yeah that's why I raised it. Because, you know, with, with, climate, with the climate emergency, we're starting to see Ross River dr- virus coming down to Victoria. So I hear. You know, Murray Valley encephalitis, Japanese encephalitis. Unreal. And, uh, I live up that way these days, and uh, the mosquitoes are as big as dinner plates at the minute after all the rain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, look, some young bloke or young woman or, mm. or somebody, some young person is listening to this program, mm. which I doubt. And, uh, sorry. sorry. Excuse me. <laughs> I'm sure there are people under 12 listening. And they say to themselves, Charlie sounds interesting. He's had a good life. Mm. How do they follow up? You got websites, that type of stuff. Um, yeah, look, I've got a, uh, I've got a YouTube channel mm-hmm. called um, the House of Red Monkey. The House of Red Monkey. Yeah, my, my production company is called the House of Red Monkey. Right. 
comes that sort of stems from my comedy days. Yeah. I've had to live with it. <laughs> um, so you can go on YouTube and check out the House of Red Monkey. There's a bunch of stuff there. Um, I'm on Insta um, with uh, Crime Scene Australia, Crime underscore right. Scene underscore Australia. Um, anybody who's uh, who's around Melbourne who wants to come and say good day, I'll be at the Crime Scene Australia launch tomorrow night at six o'clock at the Wolfhound on on uh, Brunswick Street. Um, yeah, or just contact me through the through the radio station. This radio station. This radio station. We don't know. Text messages at the desk. Yes. Text messages. Don't you know? You don't get that. I'm in here more often than than you know, Joe, because I spend a bit of time with Robbie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have seen you in there and I've wondered what's that little. What's he doing? What's Fish Boy doing down there? (laughs) You know? What mischief is he at? What's he cooking up in there? Yeah, now, now, Charlie, are you busy on the 11th? That's a Sunday. I think I'm out of town. You know what? I reckon oh. I'm up in Hills, Hillsville. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just say we're doing the, the end of the year West Papua and do what you've been to. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, but if you're There's in West town. West Papua and do on tomorrow night as well, isn't there? December 1st? Uh, December 2nd. Uh, there would be one on, there'd be flag yeah. raising on the 1st. Yeah, no, I, I, otherwise I'd be there. Joe. No, no, that's understandable. Yeah, yeah. Now, look, like I said, if there's a young person listening and they, they want to get into um, filmmaking, documentary mm, making, mm. you got any advice for them? Um, the, the most important thing is to tell a personal story, follow a personal journey. You know, you can wax on and carry on and give all the facts in the world, facts and figures, and it doesn't matter if you haven't got a good gutsy human story to, to, mm. to hang it on. That's right. Because that's what engages people. You yeah. tell, them, tell them a story with a beginning, a middle and an end about a person who goes through something and are changed by it, either for the better or worse, that's what we love as people. We latch onto that. Mm-hmm. So get that and just get a little camera. And go for it. Cameras You can get second-hand cameras for bugger all these days. They're yeah. dime a dozen, and, uh, and mm. they're amazing. You can do it on your phone. Hell, yeah. you know, phones are as good as cameras were when I was a kid. Yeah, you reckon? Well, they're amazing. Oh, I've seen some great movies made on uh, phones. Mm. It's absolutely right. Yeah. And people are doing incredible things on iPhones. But you just do it. That's the key thing is just do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, you um, just do it. Yeah, you don't. You don't need. You don't need oh, a lot I've of money. Just, just do stuff that's that. And, yeah. and 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 what they talk about in documentary is why are you the person to tell this story? And that means a couple of things. It means, do you have the right to tell this story? <clears throat> Would it be better for someone else to tell this story? Do you have access? And generally, access. If you've got really good access, that means that you are the right person to tell this story. Because mm, people have given permission. That's right. It's that simple. You and ask you know, permission. And I've been working this last few films with First Nations mm-hmm. in Indigenous Australia, and that's become very complex and complicated and difficult. And I was right at the sort of at the at the bridge where things changed. You know, I made the last film I made became a TV series. I got funded. I got funding from NITV, and mm. I might have been one of the last white fellows directors mm. to get money because when I went back and pitched the oldest song on earth mm-hmm. with Carol Carpenter yep. at the doco conference mm. to all these people they said you can't do this mm-hmm. and so I've, I've had to I had, <clears throat> had to drop the film for quite a few years mm. and let the pendulum swing back a little bit yep. and now I'm back and and I, I'm in cahoots with another indigenous film production company yep. so that we can work together That's and right. I totally get it you know I understand that the empowerment of black filmmakers, of indigenous filmmakers, is super important. Mm. And that pendulum had to go that far. But one of the great 
opportunities we have in Australia is this cross-cultural space where we work together to tell our history, which is a cross-cultural history. History, yeah, it is, yeah. I mean, uh, when you're 3% of the population, you, you need support. And that's the key. It's there, like, there aren't enough Indigenous yeah, no, DOPs, no, you know, directors no, of photography, to right. do the job. That's right. You know? And those that are out there yeah. are just under the pump. Yeah, because they are right. so in demand. Because people right. want to tell these stories now. Yeah, well, to me, to me, to me, it, it's about permission. It's about permission. You got permission from the people you're going to do the story about. That's what you need. Well, thank you very much, Charlie Hill Smith, for being here. Where's the launch again tomorrow night? Tomorrow night, six o'clock at Wolfhound on Brunswick Street. Love to see people there. Come along. It's going to be great. Good. Thank you very much, Kerry Whitworth. And thank you, Kerry. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Finished. Thank you, no, Joe. we're never finished. <laughs> Here we go. See you, folks. been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.